As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're going to be answering several listener questions and taking a look at the CONCACAF Champions League. To help me do so, I've got two gentlemen. The first remains in contention for contention, excuse me, for the vacant coaching gig at uh, Red Bull Salzburg, not RB Salzburg. Pending a background check, it's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <laughs> Hello, Taylor. I'm just going to announce it now. I will not be taking that job. I'm flattered to Ooh. be considered, but uh, it's not quite the right step in my career right now. You're ruling yourself out of contention. Is it because of the background check? Were you nervous about that? Oh, I'm terrified. Yeah. Don't no, don't don't let them do that on me. They they can't find I think, it. They can't find it. I think of the three of us, you two might be the ones who maybe would would come away from a, a background check more clean <laughs> than myself. Just guessing. Uh, and that 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 third person who I've referenced twice now, uh, also joining us is a man who watched every minute of the CONCACAF Champions League uh, last night and now he's committed several off the ball fouls already this morning. It's the Baron Lord himself, Adam Snavely. Hey Adam, how you doing, buddy? On the Total Soccer Show today, it's Adam Snavely. Hi, hi everybody. Toto, wow. Okay. Thank you, Joe. It took me a minute to figure it out. I wasn't sure what if that was like the CONCACAF Champions League theme for a second And I was out of the loop. Taylor, you clearly have not spent enough time around acapella groups. That is correct, and I aim to keep it that way. <laughs> Have you spent a lot of time around acapella groups? Not at all, but I like to sing. Okay, all right. But you were not in one in college or anything Absolutely like that. Absolutely not. I feel like you might have been wearing a Letterman jacket and snapping those fingers. I feel like it's in there. I feel like mm, it's in there. I wore a Letterman jacket in high school, uh, uh-huh. soccer and swimming. Thank you, two-sport athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in college, I was mostly well-known for um, writing poetry. So, I mean, take that. <laughs> However you will. (laughs) A Letterman poetry jacket. I like it. I like it. Well, you are both here to help me uh, talk about uh, these listener questions to also talk about the CONCACAF Champions League. And Adam, since you watched both of the games last night in their entirety, what were your general impressions? Because I will admit that I watched them with like half an eye on them, half an eye on everything else that I was doing. Uh, So 
waking up to Twitter this morning, it feels like the reaction has been the officiating was terrible and all of this is unjust. But it also feels like three and maybe four of the group of the teams playing, probably just three of the four feel aggrieved by the officiating, which means maybe <laughs> it was bad on all parts. Yeah. Um. So the officiating was intriguing at several points in time. Uh, and it's also very funny simply because specifically, I think Columbus fans feel aggrieved at the officiating decisions made in their game, which prevented them from winning. And also Club America fans and the other game from last night felt particularly aggrieved with the last second penalty call uh, and uh, the officiating in general, which in fairness to Club America fans, there were 41 fouls committed last night between the two of the Portland Timbers and the uh, and Club America. There were, I think, uh, eight or nine yellow cards. Maybe uh, I'm checking that now. Nine. There were nine nine yellow cards and somehow Claudio Bravo got like seven of them. So (laughs) there is a lot to complain about, certainly. Uh, But at the end of the day, the results to me felt more or less fair. And honestly, if I was a fan of either Mexican club, I would still be feeling pretty okay right now. And Joe, if you're a fan of either of these MLS teams, what would you make of these results? Because it did feel like there was all this momentum. I'll speak for myself and saying that I was pretty hyped after the last round that it seemed like we might have more than just one team make the semis slash the final. Now I'm, I'm less confident. I'm wondering where you are on that one. I think if you're Portland, you're feeling great. A 1-1 result at home, it, it comes in a strange way. Yeah, but if you, if you tell Portland, okay... You're going to run out against Club America and get that draw at home. You're going to have to give up one away goal, but then you can go back to Mexico and pretty much just need to win or or keep it scoreless. I mean, or you know, or win a multiple goal mm-hmm. draw. Excuse me. I think that's I think that's fine for them, and I think they take that. Columbus, with the way that game went down, giving up that late equalizer, they're kind of in the Club America shoes for their game. That's a tough one, and you come in with without Lucas Elrion for the next game after he picks up a yellow card early on in that first half. You're in a tough spot, giving up two away goals and now having to go down to to Mexico and the other difficult thing is Monterey didn't come in with the first choice 11 Javier Aguirre didn't bring his his first choice guys or or a lot of his first choice guys even to Columbus for this game and so when you're up 2-1 you think okay this is the result we need against a weakened Monterey side and when that doesn't stick that result doesn't hold you're in a little bit of a tougher spot headed into that second leg Do you have any thoughts on what they might be able to do to get back into this, needing those away goals or at least one away goal and then keeping a clean sheet without Zellerion? Are there things Columbus could do to limit what Monterey will try to do in that game? Honestly, I don't think they're going to try to change a whole lot from the style that we've seen Caleb Porter implement with this team. Zellerion's going to be out, so we're probably going to see Pedro Santos inside as a number 10. He's fully capable of doing that job. He usually starts on the wing and the tucks inside anyway, so it's not a totally dissimilar role for Pedro Santos. I think the crew are going to go down and say, okay, we need to control the game a little bit. We need to win the ball. when We need to use the ball to create goal-scoring opportunities. It, it kind of is at times similar to how Greg Berhalter played with the crew. It's a little less, uh, it emphasizes ball movement and, and ball possession a little bit less. But I would expect the crew to go down to Monterey, control possession as best they can, and try to use that possession to create chances. And, and if they can do that effectively, they definitely still have a chance to win this thing. 
Final uh, quick question for me for Adam in our abbreviated CONCACAF Champions League review. Uh, is Adam watching live with the penalty call at the end of the Timbers game? Merritt Paulson uh, can be seen very, very <laughs> adamantly claiming it was a penalty. Uh, but I'm wondering when you were watching what your thoughts were on that decision and how confusing you found the end of that game to be. It is one of those impossible to make handball in the box decisions for me. Um you are going to upset some people. You are going to be right or wrong, basically any way you slice it. Because um, the the player for Club America, I can't remember who the the foul was actually called on. Um, but the player for Club America was already falling down. He can't control that he's falling down. He's just it just is happening before the shot even takes place. And so his arms are naturally going down to the ground to, so that he doesn't slam his head into the turf, which is fair. I think that we all have the right to that. <laughs> um, and the shot just gets hammered right at him and it hits his arms and it's, and he's, and he's, you know, like a foot away and he can't do anything, but his arms are out and they stop the ball from traveling to goal. And so, there's a obviously the I feel like we're we're having to go into the metaphysics of, of refereeing and kind of like talk about uh, like ontological arguments about what is a, the spirit of the handball and when what is not. Um, I I feel like I've seen them given and I feel like I've seen them not given. Ultimately, I, it's 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 just one of those calls that it's like until we have a more clearly worded kind of laws of the game on that, you're not going to please everybody with a decision ever. Yeah, because I think it always comes down to what the official is looking for in that moment. And when you have the scrum and there's contact all over the place, I think there is a world in which you see that incident and it looks like the player throws himself in front of the shot and then there's an argument to be made that he's out of control, but he's deliberately out of control to block that shot so the handball is given. Then there's the counter argument of no, he's fouled, no, he's clipped, no, there's contact and that's why he's falling. And I think it, it always comes down to, yeah, the gray areas, the the sort of back and forth you can have about the call but fundamentally it ends up being a penalty so i guess that's good for timbers fans joe did you have anything uh to say or anything to add on that uh penalty or should we get to some listener questions oh let's get to the questions it's a wild All moment right. and i don't want to talk about the metaphysics of refereeing or the mm-hmm. spirit of the handball so uh Fine. we can carry on I will say, I will say really quick that one of the funny, like seeing all of a sudden Felipe Mora jump into the arms of Merritt Paulson was one of the funniest (laughs) images I think I've seen in quite some time. That was a, that was a personal favorite for myself. I did enjoy that it resembled that, that, that like ending sequence did resemble like the end of a, like a war movie when you're not really (laughs) celebrating that the battle is over. It's just like, okay, all right. We have a, like nobody celebrated the penalty aside from the fans and Merritt Paulson. All the players were just exhausted by the end, I think. Oh, Felipe Mora was celebrating. Let me tell you what. (laughs) There were definitely a couple players that were celebrating. All right. That's probably fair. That's probably fair. All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Bayern Munich. Let's talk about RB Leipzig because we have seven listener questions to get to. Uh, as always with TSS listener questions, they are all over the place, but they're starting in an obvious one from Tyler Kinchella or Kinchella. We have three different questions. We'll get to them individually. Uh, in a surprise to absolutely no one, Bayern Munich appointed Julian Nagelsmann as their manager. What can we expect from Bayern in a bit of a transition next year under him? Same question, but for Jesse Marsh at Leipzig. And finally, will a top four Bundesliga side be too much of a jump for Marsh? So let's start with the first one, Joe. Uh, what should we 
we expect from uh, Bayern Munich under Julian Nagelsmann? I think we should expect Bayern Munich to look a lot like what RB Leipzig have looked like under the last couple of years under Julian Nagelsmann. So Hansi Flick was using this 4-2-3-1 shape with Bayern Munich. It was something that we'd we'd almost grown comfortable with watching Bayern Munich. Occasionally he tweaked things, but that was his go-to approach. Nagelsmann is not bound to a singular approach. At Leipzig, he used a 4-2-3-1, but he also used a 3-4-3, a 3-5-2, a 4-3-3. You get the idea. Taylor, you and I have talked about a lot of the different tactical wrinkles that Nagelsmann's used at Leipzig, kind of looking through the lens of Tyler Adams a little bit. Nagelsmann is is much more of a principle-based manager and, and much less of a formation-based manager. And so I think for all of us getting ready to watch Bayern Munich next year, don't expect to see one singular lineup, one singular set of positioning. Instead, I think we're going to see a whole bunch of different looks that that are designed to get a lot of numbers in central midfield, that are designed to get fluidity on the wings. We've seen Adams rotate in and out from wide to central a whole bunch over the last couple of seasons. Aggressive center back play, that'll be similar from, from Flick over now to Nagelsmann. And then a high line, also similar. So there are some things that are going to be the same, but I expect to see more fluidity, uh, more emphasis on rotation and checking your teammates to see how you're supposed to move on the field. And overall, that could... That could make Bayern Munich look even more like a modern soccer team in 2021-2022. And are there players, Joe, for Bayern Munich that you think will be like even stronger or in better positions under the system that Nagelsmann will utilize or the style of play he wants to utilize? And conversely, are there players that you think maybe might be on the outside or might ha- take some time getting used to it? Because for me, like honestly, like Robert Lewandowski is an example of a player who could fit the system, but I think of Nagelsmann's Leipzig teams, even his Hoffenheim teams, and they seem to be predicated on pacey counterattacks if yeah. that situation is on. Not to say Lewandowski is slow, but I don't think of him being as this li- like line-breaking striker. So I think there will have to be some tweaking and some tinkering to make sure that it kind of complements one of the best strikers in the world as opposed to ostracizes. No, I totally agree. And that's an interesting point to think about some of the old guard, right? Because some of the old guard is leaving. Jerome Boateng and David Alaba are going to be gone. Diet Openmecano is going to be in. And so now you still have Thomas Muller. You still have Robert Lewandowski. How are those guys going to adjust? I can see it taking a little bit longer. I totally expect both of them to be key parts of Nagelsmann's Bayern Munich team. But it, it could take them a little longer to figure out how to actually play within a different set, uh, a different set of tactics and a different system. A couple players that I think could really benefit. Serge Gnabry is one of them. He played under Julian Nagelsmann before at Hoffenheim, and he's been used as a wingback under Nagelsmann before at Hoffenheim. And so we could see Gnabry inside. We could see him higher up the field as a winger. Or we could see him a little bit deeper playing as maybe a right-sided wingback rotating inside. Lucas Hernandez is another guy. I think he'd be a great fit for that Mukele role that we saw at Leipzig, that center-back, full-back hybrid. He, he's already done that a little bit under Hansi Flick, but it's been more deliberate. You're playing full-back in this moment. Okay, now we're making a sub. Now you're playing center-back. Under Nagelsmann, I expect those players to move fluidly during the during the run of play. So Lucas Hernandez could be a guy. Alfonso Davies, another one, Joshua Kimmich. Bayern Munich has a ton of flexible guys already. And, and a lot of those players, I think, are really set up to thrive under Nagelsmann. And Adam, the other thing Bayern Munich has is the reputation of being Bayern Munich. They're always going to be a frightening team or intimidating team to play. I know you as a Dortmund fan probably enjoy those games, but are also slightly nervous when Bayern Munich <laughs> come to town. Uh, and I think like where I'm coming from with this question is that there are managers that intensify that reputation, and then there are managers that do the opposite of that. So I would argue like Niko Kovac is one who 
he has some experience. He's this exciting appointment theoretically, but I don't know if he made Bayern a more intimidating team or like they, they didn't seem more intimidating under him. And obviously their performances were not for you as a fan of Dortmund or, or a, at least a nominal fan of Dortmund. Uh, like what does Nagelsmann moving to Munich do for you? Are you more scared of them or do you think there's like, ah, I'm not sure how this is going to go. I think Dortmund could maybe find a way through. A nominal fan of Dortmund. Well, I don't. I don't. I just don't want you to be speaking from a like. I'm an expert. I know all the things. <laughs> standpoint. That's all. Sure. That's fair. Um. I. I. Uh, the biggest Dortmund fan of the world. How about that? <laughs> Maybe not. But. But I am a Dortmund fan, and I, I wear that proudly. There we go. No, I think that it's kind of impossible to make Bayern Munich more scary at this point, just because they have been so utterly dominant for the last whatever seven, eight years. Um, <clears throat> whatever, however long it's been since the last time that Dortmund won the league, since they were the last team to win the league that was not named Bayern Munich. Um, so in a way, it's kind of like, all right, like you've got a new coach, and it's and it's Julian Nagelsmann, and and that's, I mean, like he is a good coach. I I think I, I respect Julian Nagelsmann a lot. I think that when I look at the appointment though, and look at what Nagelsmann is known for, um, and kind of specifically how. He has this reputation as a tinkerer where he is a person that he has a million tactical ideas seemingly all the time. And he's frequently changing how his team is shaped and what his team is doing in those shapes mid match. Like that, that is something that I've heard a lot about and, and seen a lot from, from Julian Nagelsmann's team. And part of me wonders, and maybe it's an eternal optimist in me. Part of me wonders if he doesn't ending end up being a phenomenal fit for Bayern simply because they are not broke and he might try to fix them. Do you know what I'm saying? That's a, yeah, I do know what you mean. That, I, that's I, a really interesting point. I think that especially, I mean, under Hansi Flick, a lot of the time Dortmund or Dortmund, Bayern were, were just kind of like keeping it simple, stupid. Like it wasn't a, a there weren't massive, tactical innovations that were coming out of Bayern Munich. It was, we're putting our best players in their best positions and, and we're relying on our quality to beat you a lot of the time. And, and, and that has been good and not just enough. That has been good, like very good for a long time. Good enough to win a champions league. I don't want to take anything away from Bayern or, or Hansi Flick. Um, they, they knew exactly what they needed to do to win and they executed on those concepts. I wonder a little bit. If Julian Nagelsmann tinkers Bayern out of dominance and also it, it, it's kind of a meme a little bit among Dortmund fans now that for whatever reason, for a long time, Dortmund just plays for some reason out of their skull against Leipzig. That, that is a, a thing. Like for, for whatever reason, no matter how poorly Dortmund seems to be doing a lot of the time, Dortmund beats Leipzig a lot of the time. That is, that is a, a, just a kind of established pattern at this point. So if anything, I mean, yeah, I guess Byron signing one of the, one of the most eligible coaching candidates in the world, uh, is a little bit scary. And I think as a, an objective outside soccer observer, I can say that, but also as a Dortmund fan, I'm not that concerned. And in, and in a strange way, I might be even a little hopeful that maybe these things come to pass that, that knock Bayern off their perch a little bit with the coaching change. 
And Joe, do you think Leipzig fans should be feeling an equal amount of trepidation with Jesse Marsh coming in? How do you think that could work out for them? I think it it could work out really well. It, it's hard. Adam, you and I have actually talked about this before on an episode of the Total Soccer Show. We had a question about Jesse Marsh. But Jesse Marsh is coming in, and he's this really promising coaching prospect. He's had success in New York. He's had success with Salzburg in Austrian domestic competitions. But I think there's just one cloud hanging over Jesse Marsh. And I personally don't really buy into this cloud, but there is this cloud over Jesse Marsh, and it's that he's never made it out of the Champions League group stage in Europe. He's never gotten out in his two tries with Salzburg. If he had, I think this appointment would be would be just incredible for RB Leipzig, but but he hasn't. And so Salzburg didn't make it out. It's such a tricky kind of in-between job with Salzburg. You're, you're selling your best players on halfway, halfway through the year more often than not. You're this transition job. You're a transition team within the Red Bull system. And so I think that Marsh is going to be a success at RB Leipzig. That could be some American bias. I've I've watched him give some coaching presentations before. I, I really buy into what he's doing on a personal level. I, I think he's a really interesting guy with a lot of interesting ideas on how to play soccer, and they've clearly been successful ideas. I don't know how he'll do at Leipzig. I don't think the move is too much of a jump or anything like that. I think he's ready for this step. But I, I don't know how RB Leipzig fans will perceive him being appointed as their manager. Is that is that really a criticism that's been extended uh, like his way never getting out of the group stage because that feels a little bit to me like criticizing a minnow for not being a shark. Yeah, like, that right? doesn't seem in in two opportunities as well. It's not like he's been coaching in the Champions League for 40 years and has I, never found a way through. I will say if I if I can interject here, um it, it's it's not just that he hasn't gotten out of um, the group stage of the Champions League. It's also that he hasn't had much in the way of famous Europa League victories, um, which because um, uh, Marco Marco Rosa was the the Salzburg coach before him, correct? If I'm yep. not mistaken, because yep. because under under Marco Rosa, uh, uh, Salzburg actually did pull out some pretty impressive Europa League victories and made a couple of deep runs in that competition. And even though Marsh's teams have put in some very impressive Champions League performances. Obviously the Liverpool game comes to mind. Um and and the the half English, half German, very uh very uh epithet laced halftime speech was kind of seen <laughs> around the world, I guess. Um but uh he hasn't been able to kind of like replicate that same success in terms of actually completing something of a famous victory. So I think it's a little bit more complex than just, he hasn't gotten out of the champions. Like I don't think that people are necessarily expecting Jesse Marsh to take uh, Red Bull Salzburg to the champions league finals. So final question for both of you uh, on this topic then would be, will a top four Bundesliga side be too much of a jump for Jesse Marsh? Uh, Joe, why don't you start us off with this one? Uh, I, I think Adam sort of alluded to this earlier, or maybe just openly said it, uh, but I'm inclined to think that maybe Bayern could be a bigger jump for Nagelsmann than Leipzig will be for Marsh. That's kind of where I'm coming from for this one, but I look forward to hearing where you all are on this one. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to compare those two jumps 
But I think the fit is natural for Jesse Marsh. I, you know, I, I made that whole Champions League comment before because I think that is, and, and European competition in general, now that Adam's provided a bit more context there. I think that is a, a fair thing to think about as Marsh makes this transition. But I think he's a good coach. He's spent time with Leipzig already. He's been an assistant there under Ralph Rangnick before during the 2018-2019 season after he moved from the New York Red Bulls over in Major League Soccer. And so he's familiar with how that organization operates from inside Leipzig and from outside. He plays a style of soccer that will be very familiar to the fans of that team and to the players of RB Leipzig. It seems like a good fit. I don't think this is too big of a jump for Jesse Marsh at all. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Joe. I don't think this is, uh, a significantly, significantly like big or huge jump for Jesse Marsh. And, and I mean, talking about the familiarity with the style, I, I think just the style itself that Jesse Marsh plays is one that is always going to be at least relatively successful. Um, if, if you are, are gathering the players and, and getting them bought into that pressing system, because it is a kind of a return to a little bit more. I mean, I mean, not, it's hard to call anything about RB Leipzig old school, um, hmm. just because they are such a new team in every, in most every I mean, sense you, of the word. If you're like 19, they're old school. Yeah. If you're 19. <laughs> if you're, if you're a, a true zoomer, I, I suppose that is the case. Um, but it's a return to, it's a, it's more of a return to what Leipzig looked like under Ralph Rangnick. It's, it's a return to that kind of original, uh, those, those original upstart Leipzig teams that kind of took the Bundesliga by storm. Um, those are i mean the 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 high press style is going to yield you results a lot of the time and i think that especially given the resources at rb leipzig's disposal and i think that we're not going to see something like a a bob bradley situation where you have a, a team that has signed the coach and then only gives him like a couple months and then oh a couple results didn't go our way so we're going to fire him immediately i think that there is going to be a little bit more investment in jesse marsh succeeding uh, and giving him time to work things out if he needs time. I, I don't think that this is too much of a jump for Jesse Marsh at all. And I think that uh, the the support system around him is going to facilitate his success rather than be on the lookout for the first sign of trouble. Right, well, Tyler, I hope that we have answered all three of those questions. And uh, American soccer fans, I hope you all are feeling optimistic about Jesse Marsh at Leipzig. Bayern fans, I hope you're feeling even more optimistic, even though you don't deserve any more optimism because you win all the time anyway. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter. You'll be I, fine. I don't hope you, I don't hope you feel optimistic. <laughs> um, well, while Adam uh, continues to throw negativity towards Bayern Munich, and I would say it's understandable given you know the nominal nature of his fandom, uh, we will be back uh, with more listener questions in just a moment. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We've got many more listener questions to get to. The first one is going to Mr. Adam Snavely. It comes from James Chucka, who asks, uh, I'm going to simplify this one down. If you had to select a World Cup qualifying roster tomorrow and you're the head coach of the national team, are you selecting Daryl DK and what are you going to do with him in your system? And then the second part of the question would be, what do you think Greg Berhalter would actually do given the system that he already has in place? So Adam, would you put him in in there? And if so, how would you use him? And then uh, we'll get to the Berhalter aspect in a little bit. Uh, well, Taylor, uh, re- recency bias be darned. I will <laughs> say that I think that I would put Daryl DK in any theoretical World Cup or top 23 roster that the U.S. would be putting out right now. And that's simply because there's... Almost nobody that really fits his profile in the striker pool that the U.S. has. Um, and if you look at a lot of the other options, there's a lot of different player profiles that exist, but there's a nobody that really combines Daryl DK's strength, his speed, his ability to move off the ball. And I think that we've seen with Barnsley a, a little bit of an increasing ability to find the open spaces and, and get looks, which was one of the primary concerns I think with Daryl DK going forward into his pro career is there's, there's obviously talent. There's obviously a, an abundance of physical gifts. Is he getting into scoring positions enough? Is he being ruthless enough and, and, and getting into those spots where he needs to be? And I think that we have seen growth there at Barnsley. So when I'm thinking about the, the U S top 23, I'm thinking about that and how in Burhalter's system, a lot of the time we have seen, I think, Josh Sargent kind of take on the nominal number one striker role, which is fine um, because I like Josh Sargent and I think that he does a lot of good things. But even if you're just bringing Daryl DK in as a person that you can bring off the bench, we saw that North Ireland game. He didn't score, but he came in and he was immediately a problem for Northern Ireland. It was immediately apparent that this is something very different than what the U.S. has shown us so far. And we can now see the U.S. going direct and being a scoring threat in any direct situation simply because this person is on the field, which makes a huge, huge difference in terms of. What I think Burhalter will do, I think the big debate. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna, let's hold off on that one we'll for hold a minute. Off on that. That's, okay. Yeah, because that's 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 one that I feel like is is an entirely different conversation. Um, weirdly enough, but for me, I'll just answer really quickly because James gave us the opt out of I'm building this roster tomorrow. I would say, uh, yeah, I would because I think the way Barnsley play is probably the way my team is going to play if I'm building a roster tomorrow for competitions in the near future. It's going to be long ball. It's going to be him having to do a lot of running and and fighting to hold the ball up so other people can get in and around him or like around him so we can get some goals. So I think, yeah, I I would put him in my team. Uh, Joe, would you put him in yours? And if so, how would you utilize him? I would. This this is hard because I think for me, it boils down to how many strikers do you want to bring? to whatever competition specifically world cup All qualifying as it's named in the question <laughs> Let's go with your 11 that you built where we had 11 <laughs> strikers on the perfect field. yeah so i'm bringing 11 number nines no i i think perfect. i'm team bring two strikers and so josh Sargent for me is going to be one of them then it's a question of who the second one is is it jossie zardes is it daryl dk is it jesus ferreira and for me, it is Daryl DK because the grass is long in World Cup qualifying sometimes. And <laughs> sometimes you need to play over that grass instead of on top of that grass. And Daryl DK, I think, is the best player, best number nine suited to playing in that kind of style. 
All right. So I think we all agree we would put him on our rosters. Now, the the other question, the maybe more important question, but less important at the same time. Adam, would Greg Berhalter put him on the roster? I think at this point that yes, I think the answer to that question is yes, he would. And I think that we come to that simply because I feel like he is a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more settled with Josh Sargent as a an option at striker that's always going to be there. He has a safety blanket option in Jossie Zardes, I think. And I think that the big positional battle for Daryl DK and the big person that would be a, someone who is preventing him from getting on the roster at this point would be Josie Altador. And at this point, in the last year or so, when we've seen Josie Altador called up to the national team, he's ended up not playing. And and we've seen and heard talks of little injuries, little tweaks that have occurred, and then Josie has released cryptic tweets uh, in response to those, and and there's been mm-hmm. a, a lot of speculation. And and frankly, I'm kind of at the point where I have no idea where Josie Altador stands with Greg Berhalter. And kind of the last time we saw Josie with the U.S. men's national team for an extended run and as kind of the undisputed number one striker was 2019 Gold Cup. Um and we're now already almost two years from that point. So I think that's the big positional battle and big person that Daryl DK would need to be out. And at this point in time, I think he has the edge. All right. So Adam is putting Daryl DK on Greg Berhalter's roster. Joe, are you doing the same? I am. Yeah, I think Greg will bring him. I think it's going to be Sargent. I think it's going to be Zardes, and I think it's going to be DK. It it makes sense to have that mix of skill sets. You're going to need to play a lot of games in a short amount of time. Having three out-and-out strikers probably does make a bit more sense. I just would use Tim Weah, I think, instead of Jossie Zardes as that third striker. You get a little bit more positional versatility there. But I think it makes sense for all the reasons we've said for Berhalter to bring Daryl DK to pretty much any competition right now. I am of the same opinion, so I won't even add anything else aside from, yeah, let's get Daryl DK on that plane. Let's win the World (laughs) Cup. I think that's fair to assume we will. Uh, While I assume away, I will also ask our next question. Uh, It comes from Jackie Choi. As a follow-up to the question about the Wando phenomenon last week, uh, which would be players who had otherwise good careers, but like one very negative moment that stands out. Who are some players who are the opposite, who weren't actually that incredible, but who are beloved for a heroic moment during a game? The, well, we'll always have blank sort of players. Uh, I think in the past, I've talked about Federico Makeda being this type of player from Manchester (laughs) United, coming in and scoring a ridiculous goal. Then I think he scores one more. And then I think it kind of goes downhill from there. But in the title winning season, he is, or in that title winning season, I should say, he was very instrumental. I've got one or two other nominees, uh, but Adam, I'm excited to hear who you have as one of your nominees. I think, I think the, the term is, is the streets won't forget, right? Yeah. That's, that's the type of people, the people, the streets will remember, uh, mm-hmm. X player. Uh, so yeah, Federico Makeda is, is kind of the, the the poster child i'm pretty sure i have actually been on an episode where we have talked about him and uh, this this is kind of a, a similar question uh in in a way but i did have um a a couple of ideas a couple of thoughts and i'm going to lead off with one that i think is not as as obvious an answer to this question and it might be cheating because uh because this happened so so long ago um, but, um, I select as my first 
player for this question. Uh, uh, Joe Gatins of the 1950 United States World Cup team because he scored that goal against England and everybody talks about how he was that person that did that. That was that that happened, you know, and then promptly we we really never hear from him again. <laughs> and and I think that that's the uh, that's that's the type of of really true like one one game wonder. My favorite fun fact about him in general is that he was never actually a United States citizen. Um, he was a, a, a player from Haiti who lived in the United States for a while. And uh, it was a time when international soccer eligibility was real, real fast and loose. Uh, and, and he just randomly showed up at the world cup to play for the United States. Um, and we have that game uh, for for the U.S. and they complete that shocking one nothing upset of England, and then we we promptly kind of like don't really hear much from him again. I think he went to France to play for a while, um, but yeah, that's that's definitely one person I had there. I also uh, for the the sake of uh, my my mother, I had to shout out uh, Josimar from Brazil and the 1986 World Cup. Uh, where that was really like a, a game and a half because he kind of came on as as an unknown kind of substitute uh, against, I believe it was Northern Ireland, and then played the next game also against Poland and had two unbelievable goals. And it was kind of like, nobody knows who this person is, but maybe he's the best right back in the world. And then he kind of just promptly does nothing else. I think he spent, I found he spent four years at Botafogo in Brazil and then the rest of his career never spent more than two seasons at a club, uh, was just constantly bouncing around and not, not making a ton of noise. Um, and then the, the last person that I had was, uh, a, a Russian forward, Oleg Selenko, uh, because he at 19 in the 1994 world cup against Cameroon, he scored five goals in a game and he won the golden boot that year at the World Cup with six goals. He only scored one other goal, but because of that one game, essentially, he won the golden boot. He got himself a move to Valencia and promptly really never did much of note ever again. Wow. All right. I think Adam has gone deep into the history bank, and I appreciate that yeah. because uh, I was not willing to do that level of research, but Adam did. Joe, <laughs> where were you in your research? Um, I decided to go fully domestic and stay here in the United States for Ooh. my two picks. Uh, number one, Aurelian Collin, who helped Sporting Kansas City win the 2013 MLS Cup. Collin's now a center back, uh, a reserve center back for the Philadelphia Union. But in that in that game in 2013 against RSL, he scores the game-tying header, and then he scores the game-winning penalty over Nick Romando with a really well-placed right-footed finish. It was Sporting Kansas City's 10th penalty in that game, so he certainly wasn't a first-choice guy to take that penalty. RSL then come up and miss their game-tying penalty. So Sporting Kansas City win that game thanks to Aurelien Colin, who's French. She played some in France, Spain, Scotland, England, Greece. Port, Port, I wrote down Portland, but I'm very sure I meant to write Portugal. Um, and then here in the United States with Sporting Kansas City, Orlando, the Red Bulls, and now, as I mentioned before, Philly. He hasn't done anything so far in his career to equal that one moment in MLS Cup, and uh, I want to give him credit for that. The other guy, quickly, that I had is Thomas Asal. 
I kind of cheated here. This is the MLS back tournament legend, the MLS's back tournament legend from last year in goal for the Vancouver Whitecaps, who saved 87 bajillion shots against Sporting Kansas City in the round of 16 in that tournament. He's only 21, so there's time for him to continue dominating in net, but he's not a starter for the Whitecaps this year. He just got those couple games because Vancouver's first two goalkeepers were out, and he put on a heck of a show in goal, and I just, more so than anything, I just wanted to shout out Thomas Asal. So, uh, thank you for this question, because, uh, Jackie, you gave me an excuse to do that. Saskatchewan Schmeichel. Oh, yeah. Saskatoon <laughs> Schmeichel. I love okay. you guys. So, okay. uh, my, my other one that I had is maybe, maybe it doesn't quite fit the categories the way, the way you all have done so perfectly, but I'm going to throw Mario Goetze in there as a, a player who like, had a good career, but then also I think has, like, if you think Mario Goetze, you don't think like, oh man, that guy is the best player in the world. You think like, what happened to him? Is he yeah. okay? Are there injury issues? I know there was a medical thing, but maybe there was some discipline stuff. I'm not sure. Like it, it he does doesn't have the that guy is one of the best players or like certainly one of the most important players for both Dortmund and Bayern Munich somehow and also Germany. But scoring a World Cup winner, I think, will forever cement you in the good books in uh, the, the hearts of the German people. That's what I'm going with. Uh, so Mario Goetze and Adam, I apologize if I've horrifically offended you. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, uh, I mean, I'm not offended. I just take issue with the, the assertion that Mario Goetze has one game, but that's, that's fine. You know what? You're, you're entitled to your opinion. All right. Well, I appreciate that you uh, have not come through the microphone uh, to attack me. Uh, let's get to our next question, which comes from, I believe, Kenneth Seiden. Do you think uh, the amount of talk about a large roster turnover from Olympic qualifying to the actual Olympics had a negative effect on the players during qualifying? Uh, Joe, what do you think? Do you think the narrative about the reduced roster size would have had an impact on the team during qualifying? No, I don't. To put it as succinctly as I can, for me, that should motivate players, right? The Olympic qualifying tournament is an opportunity for guys, some of whom might not have been first choice. Atlanta United kept some of their guys out that maybe would have jumped ahead of a couple of the players on that small roster. And so this is a group of players that had a chance to prove themselves to earn a spot in the Olympics. For me, that's huge, right? And it's always going to be that way a little bit where there's this over, over, you know, overarching threat of roster turnover. If some of the senior level guys want to come and play in that tournament, you might get booted. But you're probably not going to get booted if you ball out in in Guadalajara. And so for me, regardless of what that narrative was, it, it seems like Guadalajara and that whole tournament was a chance for some of these players to actually show themselves and perform really well and earn a spot in Tokyo. And so I, I think the answer is no. I, I think this conversation about that turnover should have motivated these guys. Although it, I might be the only one who thinks that way. Do you guys agree, disagree? Where are you at? Uh, where I am is that, yeah, I think it's sort of a like a down the road sort of problem where, you know, it's a thing that is going to have to be dealt with that you're going to have to handle at some point, but you don't need to handle it right now. And when you're in camp for qualifying or when you're in camp for the national team, I think it's so competitive and such demanding environment that there isn't really a luxury of how will this tackle or this pass impact my ability to make that Olympic team down the road. I think it's all sort of blended together probably. And there's an, a hope or an expectation that if I perform well in training, if I perform well in friendlies and in some of the qualifying games, then maybe I will be able to to make that team. But I don't think it's an ever present thing. I will say that I like I am not a professional footballer, nor have I ever been. So I don't know how much there is 
the sort of like brooding competitiveness and the brooding negativity. I've been on teams where there was definitely competition for a certain place. And with that, sometimes you get the camaraderie of like picking each other up and helping each other along. You tend to get that with goalkeepers. I think at the professional level, there's some competition, but there's also a lot of support. But you will have those players who are sort of like fist like, like you know like clenching a fist in celebration when uh a goal is missed or an extra point uh goes wide that maybe there's that competition does breed some level of negativity but i don't know how much of that can exist in a team like the u.s because i think it takes a back burner to winning and remaining really competitive so joe i'm with you in that i went longer to say no <laughs> i don't think it has that big of an impact adam yeah what do you think? i agree i don't think it, it really comes into play and and I don't want to belabor the point too much because I think that we're all saying the same thing more or less. But I, I do want to yep. make the point that I think specifically in the little American soccer sphere, I think these players have to be aware of the conversation surrounding the U.S. failure to qualify for multiple men's Olympics in a row in soccer. I think that there's no way that they don't they don't see that they don't know that conversation and what has occurred the last several times. And I, I feel like there has to be at least some sort of motivation just to say, we are the ones who, who snapped that we are the ones who, who went in and got and, and handled our business. Basically we got the job done. We did the thing that we needed to do. We're not going to be the carriers of this legacy more or less. I, I think that, if I was a player, that desire to just not be the ones that continued that legacy of we're not qualifying for the Olympics would far outweigh any concern about, oh, what if I get left off the final Olympic roster? I, I don't think that you can even be thinking about that at all in light of the fact that the U.S. has not qualified for the Olympics in so long. The last time we had qualified for the Olympics, we were playing Sasha Kleschen. Uh, as a as a U23 player. It was a long time ago. So I, I don't think it really comes into play very much at all. So this is fascinating. I don't know where you two were on this one. I 100% was coming at this from the women's team perspective. Oh, wow. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, that's which I think I'm wrong. I think I'm wrong to do. But I definitely read that because there's so much talk about how the women's rosters are going to be pared down to 18. I think the men's are too. I'm not sure. But I assumed it was that, like the competition for places in the team. No, you all are definitely are, right. But I think I like that we all yeah, still wait, agree fundamentally. Are we? Are we right, though? <laughs> Is that, yeah, we've got to be. Yeah, I think so, because I think the question, seeing it from that other lens, this is fascinating. I think seeing it from the lens that you all saw it from makes a lot, as much or more sense, because it is sort of, if you are one of those players who maybe was on the bubble of making the team, and then you did, but you know that if we qualify, better players could come along. Are you so worried about that, that you're not performing to the level of expectation and the level of your overall ability? I could see how that would have an impact, to be honest. I don't think it did. I don't think it's the primary answer. I could see yeah, how that is smaller. I, I, I don't know. Because has has women's Olympic qualifying art? I mean, that already occurred like a long time ago. So yeah, I think so. Like I, I kind of like it's it's such a strange thing. I think mostly I'm just focused on the 21 to 18 aspect of the roster churn, but I think that's where probably it shows that you all are approaching this from the proper perspective. Yeah, yeah, I know. yeah. I I I now I I just like kind of like I feel bad. I hope I didn't wow. mistake the question. I hope that we've answered the correct one. 
I think you all have. I think I have not. So while we regroup from this stunning revelation, uh, we'll take a break to hear from today's sponsors and we'll be back with our final three questions. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. Final segment, three questions to go. The next one for you, Adam, from Robert Cordova. Would staggering which players jump be a better option than having players on the ground during a free kick? <laughs> oh, we're getting into the, the tail <laughs> section of the show when the weird questions come out. Uh, with teams taking part in placing a player on the ground like a corpse <laughs> next to the wall during free kicks, I offer a different option. Players would stagger the jumping. An example would be in a four-player wall from left to right, player one and player three would jump, player two and player four do not. Did I fix the problem? Uh, I Robert. love I love the imagination and the creativity. Um, but no, I don't think you fixed the problem at all, Robert. Uh, and and that's simply because that would then require every single time that you are setting up a wall, which which first of all, let's talk about how walls are created in general, because that is when you are on the team that is setting up a wall, almost always, that is one of the most chaotic processes. Uh, you can decide in general, like, Oh, the, the free kick is happening over here. Like these people are going to be in the wall, but that's almost never how it always turns out. <laughs> it's, it's almost usually, Oh, they're taking the, they're taking the kick quicker than we thought they're going to hurry up and get in here next to me. Like kind of thing. It's a very, very chaotic process almost always to get to that point where these are the people that are going to be in the wall. And then you are going to have to decide on every single free kick. 
different people to jump because if you have always like the second and fourth person or the first and third person as the ones that are jumping, then a a player that is good enough to sneak a shot under the wall can just aim for that person that they know is going to be jumping. So you're talking about randomized people every time, like a randomized sequence of jumpers in a system that already has not always a consistent four or four or three or four people that are in the wall. And I just think that it's a little bit too complicated and a little bit too easy for it to fall apart in question. I don't think that necessarily putting a person laying down on the ground is like the most elegant solution to the problem, but I do think it is more or less an effective one and usually works unless the wall itself comes apart as PSG found out yesterday. All right. So Adam is anti alternate jumping. What about you, Joe? I I am also anti-alternate yeah. jumping, but I love this idea so much. The creative thinking here is so good. I, I was just thinking, what if we could measure the most likely angles that the shooter's likely to try and hit the ball in the air versus hit the ball on the ground? Could we try to quantify that and Joe, then have stats players? <laughs> it's like, but, I mean, that seems that seems borderline possible. But then, Adam, you're right. It, it's not really practical. Those moments are are, are chaotic, even at the professional level. Trying to have players, you know, measure the angle. I mean, they don't have a protractor in their back pocket, right? I mean, it's not, it's not really feasible. I think at the end of the day, if you're alternating people jumping in the wall, you're just leaving yourself partially exposed in multiple areas instead of wholly exposed in one area. And maybe that's better. Maybe it's not, but I, I don't necessarily think that this method is feasible, even though Robert, I love the idea. So there you go. I want to amend the question to ask if there were a player who did have a protractor in his or her pocket, who is the player that's most likely to have one? Because my gut answer is Thomas Muller. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody that's German. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I I don't, I don't think the, uh, the alternate jumping would be the best idea. I am going to show my, like my, uh, my grumpy old man hand here and say that like every five to 10 years, the, the movie industry tries to convince us that 3D is a good thing and it's going to be awesome and it's going to make the movies better. And I have, I don't think I've ever enjoyed a 3D experience and I feel the same way about this player lying down behind the wall thing that everybody's doing. It feels like a a thing that five years from now we're going to be like, oh yeah, remember that two months when everybody started doing that? Because it seems like it leads to, it doesn't seem like a thing they actually practice. So as soon as we get a player hit in the face and there's a concussion there, that's probably going to change it. But it also just seems like it's giving license to the wall to then sort of do whatever you want because there's a guy laying on the ground behind you and that should work so that you do have people jumping and turning and spinning. And I'm a big proponent of just stand where you are, put your tall people on the wall and don't move. And then you make the shooter go over top of the wall, but at least the goalkeeper can handle that a little bit more as opposed to it going through the wall or underneath their feet or into the face of a, of a player lying down. And now we have a concussion to deal with. So maybe that's a bah humbug (laughs) approach, but I say just keep your feet and uh, stand on the wall. (laughs) Grumpy old man status confirmed. Yes. Yes. yes, I will take that one. I'll take that one. Let's see how we do with the next one. Let's see if Joe is the grumpy old man this time. I doubt that for a number of reasons. (laughs) Matt costs for official statistics, like career goals. How are the qualified leagues decided upon? Is this just a FIFA vote? For example, Ronaldo has the all time record of 602 goals, all in major competitions. But I would reckon that someone playing in say eighth division leagues has scored more goals in his or her 25 year career. 
Taylor, this feels like a question that you can identify with because you did that Soccer 101 episode recently on the top American goal scorers. And at the beginning of that episode, you talked about how it's kind of subjective, right? You had to draw lines in certain places. And that's my answer to Matt's question. I don't really think it's about qualified leagues or or how, how leagues fit into how career goals are tallied. I think it's totally based on the qualifiers on the the website or or made by the person giving you the stat. So, for example, uh, Matt Matt references 602 goals for Ronaldo. I assume he's talking about Cristiano Ronaldo, Mm -hmm. but maybe, Adam, he's talking about your beloved Brazilian Ronaldo. It doesn't matter, really. I I looked it up, and for Cristiano Ronaldo, he has 748 career goals according to Mm MessiVersusRonaldo.net, which is uh, a lot more than 602. That's a real site, by the way, and it's it's actually it's kind of dope. But anyway, it's 602 goals in the question, then 748 on that website, 791 according to Wikipedia, yep. even a different number still according to FBREF. The key is to look at the qualifiers and, and what is being included in that stat because it's going to vary from place to place. There is no, at least as far as I can tell, no official FIFA-regulated system for counting up goals. Yeah, as far as I can tell, there is not one. And I think that is sort of where I go with this question is that like you oftentimes if if a number is quoted it's being pulled from a particular site or a particular article that gave that stat and if you go then to that article they're probably pulling from something else and a lot of times it comes down to sort of what the commonly held numbers are believed to be Uh, and so yeah Joe to your point like when I was doing that U.S. show the Wikipedia numbers are often different from the like U.S. soccer numbers, which are then different from the individual team numbers when you go in and look at season by season reporting for some of these players. So I think it's a very it ends up being a little bit what you're choosing to believe what the numbers are choosing to represent or how they're being used to represent things. But I think isn't it Pele who has the all time record for goals? Isn't he usually the one that's held up as scoring at like six million goals and they've all Probably, totally been counted? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is this is where I step in uh, because the Brazilian has been mentioned. Yeah. Uh, Pele has Pele has the the Guinness Book of World Record. Thank you. Records record for goals, and it's like twelve hundred yeah. or something like that. Um, but a lot of those came in in friendlies and uh, other other types of games. So uh, that's ob- it's not counted for many many places that do this yeah the answer to the question is is it's kind of a crapshoot because ultimately it's really really difficult to determine what goals to count and what goals not to count and as we have already displayed even with players playing today you have all these different numbers you have all these different numbers for like Messi and Ronaldo now amplify that by history where you have people like uh, Pepe Bicon that was playing like before and after World War II, or even Frank Pushkas, um, who were who were playing when you don't necessarily have a lot of reliable stat numbers, um, and you see some of these some of these places that that tabulate this even have marks down that this is the number and they have a little asterisk and it's basically like it's probably more than this but we can't know for sure and it leads me to my absolute favorite story about goal totals and that is uh, another brazilian romario um because a f- several years ago now he brought to the attention of the world that he was about to score his 1000th goal. Uh, and that was a big thing because it only had been done by one or two other people before Pe- uh, Pele included. And then people started digging into how he got to a thousand goals and he kind of outright admitted and said like, Oh, I counted every single goal I've ever scored. So 
it was youth academy goals were included in that goals scored in friendlies goals scored in testimonial matches i think there was a rumor that he even included goals that he scored in fifa video games but i don't think that that was actually the case he was he was counting just physical goals but yeah, it, it's always kind of a crapshoot in terms of how these goal records are determined simply because, you know, you have to determine what competitions you're actually including, what international and club friendlies count towards your goal total. You have history, you have people playing in very remote places, all of these things together combined make it kind of an impossible task to really determine who actually has the record for the most goals scored. Yeah. And, and then I would even extend that like, cause I agree with, with everything you said, Adam, and I would extend it to, you also have to look at like why you're tracking it in the first place. Cause there was a year or there was a qualifying campaign, I think, for maybe the 2014 World Cup when, like, Josie Altidore led all of CONCACAF qualifying in goals scored. But it was because he scored, like, six goals against St. Kitts in, like, the early rounds. But those still count when you look at total <laughs> qualification. So, I think, again, they you're sure looking do. at the, the competition, the quality of the opponent, and then also maybe how much you trust the sites that are reporting those numbers. So... Overall, I'd say, yeah, there's probably somebody in the eighth division who scored more goals, but uh, <laughs> I don't really want to go in and look at every single like match report to have to do that accounting and uh, believing in, in what that player is saying. So that's where I am on that one. It sounds like we're all in agreement. The final question, yep. I don't know if we'll all agree because I don't know really even what to make of this one. It comes from Eldon Hossage. <laughs> After watching Tottenham not cross the half-field line versus Manchester City, would Spurs in a Super League season have obtained more points than Schalke in the current Bundesliga season? Uh, I knew that Schalke were having a horrible season, um, uh, so much so that there was violence at their training ground that I don't want to make light of that one. But looking at their table, 30 games played, 2 wins, 7 draws, 21 losses, 18 goals for, 76 against, a negative 58 goal difference. That's not great. That's not great. So the question then uh, for you, uh, Joe, we'll go back to Joe. Uh, would Tottenham have done better than Schalke this current Bundesliga season? Oh, I don't know the answer. I, I think yes. I think yes. So yeah. I'm going to lay the groundwork here quickly. The Super League, and what it was supposed to be, I guess, was there was going to be 20 teams in there. They were going to split it into two halves, and they were each going to compete in home and away games in those two groups of 10. So if I did my math right, that's 18 goals in this little mini mid-season season, midweek season. So I, I'm saying Tottenham have 18 games to actually rack up more points than Schalke have right now. And Schalke have 13 points in the Bundesliga. And they've already been relegated and, and have had a very poor season, as you've already said, Taylor. For Tottenham to get more than 13 points, they would need just over 0.75 points per game. So they need a, a, a draw every game. They'd be set or, or a little bit less than that. And they could still get away with having 14 points. I think that Tottenham would probably get to that 14-point mark, but I, I'm not confident about that. Uh, looking at the teams that were confirmed to be in the Super League, Arsenal, uh, maybe AC Milan and Juventus are Juventus are, are like the lower-tier teams along with Tottenham, but I think I have more faith in AC Milan and, and Juventus than Tottenham, and Arsenal and Tottenham is a, a crapshoot. So I, I'm saying yes, I think Tottenham could do it if they get the right split into their 10-team group, but man, it, it would be close. All right. So Joe says, yes, they could do better than Schalke, but it would be close. What about you, Adam? Yes, because Arsenal are also in the Super League. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I think, I think we also have taken away a little bit of, of from the things that Tottenham actually did this year, which included did, Tottenham did beat Liverpool this year. 
Um, it's not like Tottenham was completely incapable of getting results at other English clubs. Tottenham did beat Manchester United, as I'm sure Taylor is aware nope, this season. Um, so I, I think especially with, I mean, obviously Jose Mourinho is not there, but if you foresee a future where you kind of just transplant this Tottenham under Jose Mourinho into the Super League because we're never going to see the real Super League, um, or at least we're not seeing it how it was proposed and we're not going to see it in the next year or two. Um, then just the way that Tottenham play, it makes getting points like even even if you're not winning the league, which Tottenham was never going to win the Super League, but they were going to get points. They're going to definitely get draws and they're even definitely going to get some wins just because that's the style that they play. It's not going to be necessarily one that wins you leagues as is abundantly clear in the Premier League, but it is a style under Mourinho that makes you kind of a threat at any given point to take points off of a team that people might not necessarily think that you're going to take points off. Also, Joe, you displayed a lot of faith in Dortmund this season uh, for saying for not including them in the lower tier of the Super League teams that were actually proposed because Dortmund was kind of proposed as a possible member. Uh, but I don't think that that you could say that Dortmund would not be uh, one of the lower tier teams Fair. in the Super League. And then you have the five qualifying teams as well, which we don't know exactly who those would include. But I think that Tottenham would definitely, I mean, you need what? You need four wins and a draw to to equal Schalke's point total at this point. Like if, even going beyond say we have to draw every match. You need you need four wins out of 18 games. I think that Tottenham can manage that. Yeah, I think they probably can as well. Just because out of your point, there's for every 3-1 loss to Manchester United, there's a 6 to 1 win for every like like 1 to 1 draw with Arsenal, there's a 1-0 win and I think you do pick up those points along the way. I think a lot of the results coming against or stronger performances coming against like perceived weaker opposition. I think that's where, like, for me, I then wonder, like, well, what would that require of them to change their style versus consistently stronger or as strong opponents? But maybe that's where Jose Mourinho would have had a better time because he would have been able to sort of game plan for those big opponents and those big moments and find ways to frustrate. Uh, sadly, that was not the case for him. Uh, we'll see how it ends up playing out for Tottenham fans and whether or not that is sad for them that he couldn't get it done. Uh, but I also I will say... Go ahead. I will say real quickly, I misspoke. I thought that Tottenham beat Liverpool this year, and it does not appear that they did. So my mistake, they did not do that. But they definitely beat Manchester United. That they did. That Just they to rub did that indeed. in for Taylor. Yeah, yeah. thanks, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, nominal fan. Uh, anyway, um, since Adam uh, has decided to bring up uh, Dortmund and Manchester United's uh, fragility and weakness this season, I feel like that's a good note to end on. But we think that Tottenham would be better than Schalke fundamentally. That's what we're saying? Yes. Oh, yes. All right, cool. Then let's end on that note. Uh, but gentlemen, thank you both for talking CONCACAF Champions League, which now feels like it was done a week ago, um, and answering those seven lister questions. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Taylor. Byron and Schalke suck. <laughs> Joe, thank you as well. And I, and I hope you, uh, you get a call about that Salzburg job sometime soon. Oh, thank you. You know, uh, maybe, maybe at some point it'll be the right step for me to take. No, it's always a blast, <laughs> Taylor. You rock. Uh, listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all again soon. 